Most people, when we say Afro-American, uh, they think only of the Negroes in the United States. But they don't realize that two-thirds of Brazil uh, are, consist of people of African blood, which means they're also Afro-American because Brazil is in South America. And in all of these, uh, many of these countries in South America and Central America, and even in Canada, uh, they are heavily populated with people whose ancestors came from Africa. So when you total up the number of Afro-Americans, real Afro-Americans, uh, in the Western Hemisphere, there are perhaps a hundred million. And if these people ever unite among themselves, not only is it necessary for the Afro-Americans in the United States to be organized, but, uh, but it's also necessary for the Afro-Americans in the Caribbean or the, the Afro-Cubans, uh, the Afro-Brazilians. It's, it's necessary for all of them to be organized. And then once they are organized in each place, we have to organize among ourselves so that the Afro-American in the United States will be uh, working uh, in conjunction in a coordinated program with those who are in Cuba and those in Brazil and those in Venezuela and those throughout the Caribbean and Haiti and in the West Indian Islands. And in this way, we actually get strength. And it's not an accident that there's no organization existing in the Western Hemisphere that's designed toward that end. It would be the, one of the, it would be a direct threat to imperialism as it really exists and, and to colonialism as it exists in the West. And one of the things that's going to help to bring this about is, the, is again, is the independence of Africa. One of the only reasons in the, uh, that we in the West have never organized, we have hated our image and our African image. And because Africa has been in the hands of people who have created an image of Africa that's negative and hateful. And uh, it has been hateful to us. We haven't wanted to identify with it. But now that Africa is getting independent and in a position to create its own image and it's a positive image, uh, those of us in the West look at the African image and see how positive it is. We begin to identify with it. We become proud of, of Africa and we, we become proud of our African blood, our African heritage. And this is what is beginning to make the Africans in the Western Hemisphere today develop more race pride. And as, as this race pride develops, then it has a tendency to make us want to unite together and work together. And your Western imperialists and colonialists uh, consider this to be a grave threat more threat than uh, communism or Marxism or socialism or anything else. The Africanism is what they consider to be the real threat. What's that box for? It's my soapbox. If you have important things to say, you use a soapbox. If now isn't a good time for the truth, I don't see when we're going to get to it. Pan-Africanism is the belief that unity amongst all people of African descent is vital to the progress of us as a collective. It's the belief that a mental and cultural migration back to Africa is the solution to many of the issues we face today around the world, whether it be at home, by that I mean in Africa, or abroad. The colonization and enslavement of African people was made possible initially by our misunderstanding of the Europeans' desire to divide and conquer Africa. And because of our people's initial misunderstanding, or I guess you could say underestimating, of the greed of those Europeans and many modern Europeans, we are, as a people, in the position we're in today. Today, we allow the boat destination of our ancestors and the rivalries handed down to us by our colonizers to interfere with us seeing each other as we are. 
Africans. Whether your ancestors were kidnapped by the French and brought to Haiti, kidnapped by the English and brought to Trinidad, or kept in Nigeria where they were enslaved and oppressed on their own land, we are all African people who share a history. I can't fully explain how stupid it is to be from one part of the African diaspora and make jokes about or embrace a division from another member of the diaspora based on where you're quote unquote from. And by that, I mean things like Haitians, African-Americans or Africans who recently immigrated from the motherland speaking down on one another because of these differences that were inherited by slave masters. I think of divisions amongst African people of the diaspora like this. If someone kidnapped three siblings and put them in three separate houses and kept them in those houses against their will for their whole lives and the lives of their kids, eventually it would be the only house each family knows. They'll start to embrace the house and make it their own. Now, how stupid would it be if generations after the initial kidnapping, the now separate families argued over and made jokes about who lives in the nicest house? Without a Pan-African unity, our battle against white supremacy is only going to be made more difficult and some would say impossible. The truth is that white supremacy has a mother and father, colonialism and slavery, with both playing an equal hand in the current oppression of darker skinned people all over the world. And as Malcolm said in the clip you heard at the beginning of this episode, there is no greater threat to this order than Pan-Africanism. Pan-Africanism in America can be traced back to the days of Marcus Garvey. Garvey, a Jamaican immigrant in 1912, founded the Universal Negro Improvement Association, the UNIA, with the goal of uniting all members of the African diaspora to, quote, establish a country and absolute government of their own, end quote. He settled in New York City and formed a UNIA chapter in Harlem to promote a separatist philosophy of social, political, and economic freedom for black people. In 1918, Garvey began publishing the widely distributed newspaper Negro World to convey his message. By 1919, Garvey and the UNIA had launched the Black Star Line, a, a shipping company that would establish trade and commerce between Africans in America, the Caribbean, South and Central America, Canada, and Africa. At the same time, Garvey started the Negroes Factories Association, a series of companies that manufactured marketable commodities in every big industrial center in the Western Hemisphere and Africa. Garvey's dreams would face opposition, though, as uh, J. Edgar Hoover's FBI, we spoke about him earlier this season, was keeping a close eye on Garvey, and Hoover felt Garvey's message was inciting black people across the country to stand up in militant defiance. Malcolm X's father and mother actually were both members of Garvey's UNIA. The FBI placed spies in the UNIA and sabotaged the Black Star Line until in 1922, Garvey and three other UNIA officials were charged with mail fraud. Trial records show that in several instances, the trial was pretty much, it was a sham, kind of like what would later happen to the Black Panther Party and many other black nationalist groups. On June 23rd, 1923, Garvey was convicted and sentenced to prison for five years. Claiming to be a victim of a politically motivated miscarriage of justice, Garvey appealed his conviction but was denied, and in 1927, he was released from prison and deported to Jamaica. Even with Garvey's deportation and eventual death in 1940, his ideas began to grow like seeds in the minds of many African Americans. Groups like the Nation of Islam and the Black Panther Party would be inspired by the UNIA's pro-African effort and take ideas from Garvey's brainchild. But I want to go back to the point where we, as African people in the West, were separated from our homeland. The, the transatlantic slave trade would transfer, and this is a conservative estimate, 12.5 million Africans to the New World. Often, the idea is told to us that this trade only hurt the Africans who were taken. 
But as Dr. Okosa Adomi Perbi, professor at the Emerita University of Ghana, explains, the depopulation had lasting effects on the continent as well. The issue of depopulation is very, very important because areas where there, was, there were plenty of walls and raids, people even found, called it a taboo to go and resettle in those places. Um, the course of my research, sometimes people have been bold enough to show me areas where nobody would want to go and settle there because the story is that as soon as you go there, you may be taken captive as a slave. And you know, it's taken a long time for Africa to catch up because of desolation and depopulation as a result of the slave trade. Do you think it's actually underdeveloped Africa? Yes, oh, it absolutely. did. It did. It did. Absolutely. And catching up is very difficult. You know, I always tell my students, it's very easy to destroy, but difficult to build. You can cut down trees, but putting the tree back to this former state has not been the same. So it's been one of the very negative effects of the enslavement experience in Africa. So you really had a loss of trained persons, skilled persons, young persons. To this day, the northern part of Ghana is more impoverished than the rest of Ghana because it was used as this pool of labor. Stories exist till this day that if you settle in certain areas in West Africa, that you will be taken as a slave. The trauma remains not only for those of us in the diaspora, but for those who remained on the continent as well. In 1850, the population of sub-Saharan Africa was estimated to be about 100 million. Had there not been the institution of slavery shipping off Africans to distant lands and working the Africans in Africa till death from a young age, the population is estimated to should have been around 200 million. While we're dispelling narratives, we must also go against the idea that Africans were not rebelling the entire time slavery was in practice and that they somehow just went along with the subjugation. Dr. Carl Patrick Burroughs of Cuttington University in Liberia explains in the clip you're about to hear just how the initial rebellions would go. Efforts at abolition began with the very beginning of the trade in enslaved Africans. Africans would overpower the crew on various slave ships and direct the ships back to the coast. Or in some cases, the ships would perish with the enslaved Africans on them. But the rebellions didn't stop there. In Haiti, Toussaint Louverture and Jean-Jacques Dessalines would lead the first successful rebellion that ended with a new nation. As the news of the Haitian rebellion spread throughout the colonies, countries began to abolish the slave trade. Not abolish slavery, but abolish the act of bringing in new slaves. Many European nations didn't want to risk what happened in Haiti happening in their colonies, and they felt that this would be most probable if new slaves were continued to be brought in. The United States' eventual complete abolition is usually only credited to the Civil War, and that's false on a few different levels I don't have time to get into. But the reality is, the abolition of slavery became a necessity after rebellions started popping up all across the South, like Nat Turner's Rebellion and John Brown's attack on Harper's Ferry. What we see here is abolition beginning not just because of some moral reformation, which to some extent existed, but abolition became the best way the Europeans and Americans believed to protect their interests. Now, about the Haitian Revolution specifically, I'm Haitian and I take great pride in the revolution. But as Pan-Africans, we must all take pride in the successes of Africans all over the world. So the Haitian Revolution wasn't just a win for those who descended from the Africans who fought it, but a win for all Africans. That revolution showed all Europeans what we're capable of and played as big a role as anything else 
in the abolition of slavery as a global institution. While we're speaking of rebellions and people to be proud of, let me also tell you about Queen Nzinga of the Ndongo Kingdom in present-day Angola. From 1635 till her death, Nzinga was in constant warfare with the Portuguese. She was a skilled diplomat, negotiator, and strategist. The story many people know of Queen Nzinga is of the time in 1622 before the war started. She went to Luanda to negotiate with the Portuguese on behalf of the royal family. When she arrived at the meeting, the Portuguese official was seated and left no seat for Queen Nzinga, expecting her to sit on the floor. Instead, one of her male attendants went down on all fours and she sat on his back. Now Nzinga was eye to eye with the Portuguese official. Nzinga fought the Portuguese until they gave in and they were forced to offer her a peace treaty. This treaty would not be acknowledged after her death in 1663, though, when her kingdom split into civil war and the Portuguese played one faction against the other. Queen Nzinga shouldn't just be a hero for Africans in the Congo, but a shining example of dignity for all Africans all over the world. Queen Nzinga fought till her death to protect her people from being kidnapped as slaves by Europeans. And when talking about slavery, some say, well, Africans had slaves too. And I won't lie to you and say that's not true, but the fundamental difference would be, as Professor Augustine Hall would explain to the BBC, was the difference in the view of the humanity of the slave. The main difference is that people were captive, were not sold. People were enslaved through war, through debt, but they were able to become included in the families of the captors. They were supposed to be taken care of. It doesn't mean that they have wonderful life, uh, but they couldn't be sold to somebody else. They were slaves of these families, and they were doing the work for this family. That's really the major difference. They were deprived of freedom, of course. They would have to work for the masters or for mistress, but they were not a commodity. Now, slavery is slavery, so I'm not going to excuse the practice when used by Africans, but... Seeing the slave as a commodity is what allowed Europeans to force their slaves to do backbreaking labor, rape and murder them, and separate mother from child. That European form of slavery removed the humanity from the African and that made every ruthless act fair game. This European style of slavery was also introduced on the African continent in the same way it'd be practiced in the New World, so we have to remove our idea that the Africans that were in Africa weren't victims of slavery. It's also said that Africans took part in the transatlantic slave trade and benefited greatly from it. You know, this idea that the Africans in Africa sold us out West. Well, this exaggeration was perpetuated by Westerners who wanted to reinforce to their captives that they were sold by their own people. I call this an exaggeration and not a lie because the truth is only a handful of African nobility were bought off by the European invaders and convinced to take part in the African slave trade. Often, their part was to avoid the kidnapping of their own people, or they would hand off their own prisoners of war to the Europeans as slaves, not imagining the experiences that they'd go through in the New World. It's important to note that what they, meaning the Europeans had that the Africans didn't, was superior weapons. Now we have the capacity to understand that might doesn't equal right. So though the Africans were in large part unable to fend off the invaders and were kidnapped and sometimes forced to send their fellow African into slavery to save their own family, it doesn't make the actions of the Europeans any less heinous. And I don't want to spend too much time on slavery here, but I do want to stress that it affected Africans both in Africa and abroad. 
Transatlantic slavery in itself is something that hurt all Africans all over the globe, whether they understand that fact or not. Even when slavery was abolished in the West, it was only that specific crime against humanity that would cease. Remember last season in the first episode, I told you guys about King Leopold II of Belgium and his actions in the Congo. Well, if you don't remember from last season, Leopold alone was responsible for the killing of 10 million Congolese from 1880 to 1930. It was his actions that made Europe stop and reassess their relationship with Africa at the Berlin Conference of 1884. And this didn't come from a humane place. I don't want to portray it as that at all, but rather it was Europe trying to orderly subjugate and brutalize Africans. From November of 1884 to February of 1885, representatives from all across Europe met in Berlin and brokered deals and signed treaties concerning Africa. By 1884, only a few countries still allowed slavery on their shores, and the new method of African exploitation was shifting to colonialism, which in the African context meant subjugating the native people into second-class citizenship, while Europeans who would move to Africa would be granted quote-unquote full citizenship. I should note that at this point in world history, the Africans in the United States were beginning to deal with Jim Crow laws. These deals and treaties signed in Berlin would only concern Europeans, of course, as Africa was split up like a pie among Europe's powers. Only Liberia and Ethiopia would remain independent nations after the conference where not a single African was in attendance. Colonialism would become just as necessary for European success as slavery as the resources of Africa were still needed by Europe as they shifted from one style of capitalism to another. There was a transition from mercantile capitalism to industrial capitalism. And for industrial capitalism to succeed, there was a need for raw material. Amongst the raw material was palm oil, produced from the oil palm tree. Palm oil was shipped to Europe. It was used as lubricant for the industrial machines. The Europeans had conquered Africa with the gun and the Bible. Those who would not kneel to the Bible would eventually meet the gun. The Christian missionaries who would be sent to Africa were as complicit in its exploitation as anyone, as it was through them that the education system that allowed colonialism to thrive took root. In many areas where we had a, a Christian missionaries, they served as the agents of the colonialism in terms of their education, in terms of providing health facilities, and even the early education sort of exposed the Africans to colonialism. Sort of the education that they were given was very elementary. They were taught what we used to call the three R's, arithmetic, reading, and writing. And therefore, the African was only equipped with the tools to serve the colonial regime. The Africans would serve the colonial regimes with their labor, resources, and even their lives, as Africans were enlisted in Europe's armies in World War I and World War II. This, along with allowing few Africans to study abroad in Europe, was a critical mistake by the Europeans, as it was at war and in the classroom that the Africans learned not only were they equal to the Europeans, but they and their people back home were being immorally treated by these people for nothing but monetary gain. Both groups, students and soldiers, returned with the same verdict. These Europeans are people just like us, and the idea of their natural supremacy is an outright lie. Though there were always Africans who knew they were equal to Europeans, the idea of European supremacy was deeply rooted in Africa as it was all around the world, as colonial education systems only taught European advances and European-styled religion that forced Africans in Africa, just like it allowed African-Americans in America, to feel that the education was proof that the African must be the natural inferior to the European. 
but it was first our mental liberation that led to the birth of Pan-Africanism. As more and more Africans got educated, quite a number of them going to study abroad. And then the influence of Pan-Africanism, we see ideas and people beginning to demand for reforms, this formation of trade unions and political parties and people begin mobilizing. And then, of course, this the formation of the United Nations uh, organization after World War II. And again, that becomes a space through which problems of the colonized are raised and tabled. What then we see is, you know, by the 60s, more and more African countries are getting their independence. Yeah. These independent struggles would be mass movements where the African people refused to work under the conditions forced upon them and pay their unreasonably high taxes to the European governments and officers that treated them like second-class citizens in their own land. At this time, we're talking about the mid-50s to the mid-60s, the American Civil Rights Movement was underway and independence movements are happening all across the Caribbean. On the African continent, though, two men, among many great leaders, rose to prominence in their respective countries and would become symbols of Pan-Africans even to today as their legacies in their home countries and abroad are that of forward thinkers who loved all Africans, regardless of the tribal divisions that were further fueled by the colonial regimes. The first of these men would be Ghana's Kwame Nkrumah. Ghana had won its independence in 1957 and Kwame Nkrumah would soon be elected the country's first president. Now, I visited Ghana in February of 2020 and I could tell you by firsthand experience that the people of Ghana, till this very day, love Kwame Nkrumah. It was he who led their independence movement and led the Volta River Project in Ghana, which led to the construction of the Volta Dam, a hydroelectric plant that still powers Ghana to this day and provides a surplus of energy that Ghana then sells to neighboring countries. Kwame Nkrumah was a man of several degrees from universities in the United States, the UK, and Ghana. He was a man with a vision of a free and united Africa. When W.E.B. Du Bois left the United States for good in 1963, he chose Ghana because of the progress of Kwame Nkrumah's administration as the country where he would live. In his autobiography, Malcolm X also speaks about how impressed he was with Nkrumah when he visited Ghana after his trip to Mecca. But Kwame Nkrumah would be overthrown in a military coup while he was away from Ghana on a visit to China in 1966. He was offered asylum by Sekuture of Guinea and would remain in Guinea until his death in 1972. It was later proven that the American CIA played a hand in the coup. The clip you're about to hear is from Kwame Nkrumah's daughter, Samia Nkrumah. In the clip, she speaks about her father's forward thinking. He was a man of the people. He moved all over the country, setting up bases. So he was, he was a good organizer. I guess he gauged the mood of the country, of the people, that they were impatient for change. He was the man of the moment, the catalyst, I would say, for our uh, independence. But as he said, many people were part of this movement, many, including women, particularly women, who were great supporters of the movement, of the, of the party eventually formed. They, were, they financed it. And I'm not talking only about um, intellectual women, but even traders, women from all walks of life. So well, it's very important very... you raise that, actually, because obviously the um, post-colonial first leaders of Africa are all men. And to this day, we've not got a very good record on female presidents in Africa. However, that doesn't mean that they were not instrumental in the uh, nationalist movements. In fact, and he always used to say, nothing, no significant change can happen without the full involvement and participation of women. So he has this radical uh, 
statements and it's in one of his books and it goes something like, you can measure the degree of a country's revolutionary awareness by the political maturity of its women. And now on to the second of the post-colonial leaders I'm going to discuss with you. Africa was free, but external powers still exerted influence. The Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union meant each side armed its supporters, creating instability in Africa. A striking example is the Democratic Republic of the Congo and the fate of its first prime minister, Patrice Lumumba. Patrice Lumumba was the first prime minister of Congo, an adamant Pan-African Lumumba wanted the immediate removal of all European military personnel from the Congo after the country gained independence. Lumumba wanted both political and economic independence from Africa's former colonizers. The Belgians, from the days of Leopold II, were getting fat from the wealth gained from the Congo and reluctant to give up the economic privileges in the area. The U.S. also feared that the raw materials in the Congo would fall into Soviet hands as Lumumba was just as willing to deal with the USSR as he was to deal with the U.S. Again, the goal here is political and economic independence. Lumumba was not pro-U.S., pro-Soviet. He was pro-Africa. Lumumba was in contact with the U.S., but where the Soviets offered a better deal, he would take the deal of the Soviets. Belgium, reluctant to dissolve itself from involvement in its former colonies' affairs, instead emboldened a military base in southern Congo, Katasa, one of the most resource-rich provinces in Congo. Soon after Lumumba became prime minister, word sprung up of uprisings against his administration in Katasa. These uprisings were getting a lot of press, even though Lumumba, who was very aware of his country's political climate, had no idea what they were about. The word Lumumba would receive from the Congolese in Katasa was that the news of these uprisings were false and only propagated by the Belgians for their own gain. What was actually happening in Katasa was the Belgian troops were harassing and abusing Congolese citizens and they were fighting back against the abuse. Lumumba would write to the United Nations and inform them of the Belgian activity and the UN Secretary General sent UN troops to Katasa. Later, it would be found out that when the UN troops arrived in Katasa, they would give their armbands to Belgian troops. You see, the locals didn't trust the Belgian troops, but would trust UN ones. Lumumba reached out to the US for assistance, but was ignored. Lumumba then reached out to the Soviet Union, who joined Lumumba in his words against the UN's refusal to do anything about the Belgians' disruptions in the Congo. Eventually, the Belgians would join forces with the head of the military, Mbutu Seko, who successfully removed Lumumba from power in late 1960. It was also later found out that the US CIA, back again, was sending money to the rebel forces. Lumumba would eventually be captured and Mbutu would become the absolute leader in the Congo. Mbutu would go on to be one of Africa's most oppressive dictators. Now, the point is proven. Pan-Africanism is and was always seen as a threat by Western imperialist forces. But what do we do now? I say we continue the work of great Pan-Africans such as Patrice Lumumba, Malcolm X, Marcus Garvey, and Kwame Nkrumah. Like the young Africans that returned from the wars and study in the West with dreams of a liberated Africa, we now, wherever we are, with the knowledge available to us at our fingertips, can make real the world that Africans from Queen Nzinga to Toussaint Louverture to Malcolm X to Kwame Nkrumah only dreamed of. A world where the African is self-determining and not under the thumb of white supremacy. Because like I said earlier in this episode, we all, as African people, share more or less the same issues. The end of the slave trade did not 
mean emancipation for Africans generally. Uh, it was an important step. It really critical is foundational to who we have become, but in no way did it lead to generalized, you know, uh, emancipation. Uh, that remains to be done. How do we disentangle, right, the cultural web and intellectual web that have that were fostered on us, um, that question our humanity? and assume our inferiority. For example, we talk about witchcraft when we talk about African religious um, traditions in West Africa anyway. If I may refer to someone out of Jamaica, Bob Marley says, emancipate yourselves from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. That's the challenge that we face now as contemporary people of African descent. But there will always be those amongst us who refuse to unite. Those who feel they are better off working for the oppressor than working with their fellow African. Those who decide that to go along with the oppression is the easier path. Unfortunately, even this person is still alienated, dominated, and controlled, as Dr. Kenneth from the University of Nairobi in Kenya is about to explain. This alienation, domination, and control is the ultimate goal of any oppressor, so why not resist it to make the world better for the future Africans as our ancestors did for us? The very interesting dichotomy between those who resisted and those who did not resist is uh, uh, fairly misleading in my view. Because um, response uh, to an encroaching colonial regime can either be by confrontation or can be by co-option. Of course you cannot rule out the fact that the arrangement of colonialism there are some African groupings who saw it as an opportunity for advancement. But the point is, colonialism means the same and one thing. It alienates, it dominates, and it controls. Even the people who purportedly benefited from it were literally alienated, dominated, and controlled. Today, Africa is dealing with neocolonialism, which can best be defined as the use of economic, political, cultural, and other pressures to control or influence other countries, especially former colonies. Neocolonialism affects Africans in Africa today, like institutionalized racism affects Africans in the United States. Pan-Africanism allows us to fight these battles together as one unified front. From the day that the Europeans landed in Africa, the goal has always been to divide and conquer Africa and her people. We can first lift these mental chains by speaking to each other as African siblings and sharing information. I'm talking about learning together, respectfully debating each other in search of truth, and ultimately remaining conscious of our shared struggle. That is how Pan-Africanism can take root in our everyday lives. We must show solidarity with Africans no matter where they struggle, for example, with police brutality. From Los Angeles to Lagos, African people are oppressed by the police systems that are meant to protect them. Now, a few months ago, the NSARS uh, movement went viral as the global community had its eyes on Nigeria and its particular issue with police brutality. The SARS unit has since been disbanded, but its replacement, SWAT, has yet to prove that it is any different than its predecessor. As the great Pan-African leader and liberator of Cabo Verde, Amilcar Cabral, once said, the relationship between people is politics. Author, activist, and teacher Omowale Rupert explains this concept in an interview with the Center of Pan-African Thought. Now, one of our greats, the great revolutionary Amilcar Cabral, explains to us that the relationship 
between people, one person relating to another or one group relating to another. That relationship, that interaction is politics. You see, when we do this in small groups, when two people converse together, that's called small p politics. When we do our little bits and pieces in the community, when our groups, we converse together, that's called small p politics. Now, when we multiply that by a massive scale, when we bring it onto the national level or the international level, the interaction between nations, you have what is known as big P politics. The politics of governance, the politics of power, who's in charge of whole nations. So politics, at its simplest level, we know from African culture, is the relationship between people. I should be clear that Pan-Africanism doesn't just belong to African politicians, though, but to every single African. Artists from Bob Marley to Fela Kuti of Nigeria to Tupac all express Pan-African beliefs through their art. Fela Kuti in particular was fiercely Pan-African and in an interview once explained how a Pan-African doesn't necessarily hate the West, but how the West is complicit in the situation Africa remains in, where military dictatorships are not uncommon on the continent. But do you hate Europe or do you hate America? No, I don't. If I hate America or hate Europe, I won't be here. You see, it is it's a culture. It's it is not it is it is Europe. It is European leadership that causes these things. The citizens don't know really what is happening in Africa. Uh-huh. You see, for instance, now the citizens of Europe should be informed that British taught us democracy. America introduced democracy into Africa. Okay. There can never be a military rule in Britain or America. Never. They will not accept it. Because in their culture, Mm -hmm. they know that the soldier has his place in the society. And everybody understands that. Now they bring the same culture to my people. And the soldiers are now ruling many African countries. And America and Britain makes does business with these governments. But these governments cannot be legal governments because they are military governments, which they cannot accept in their countries. So that cannot be fair. These are the kind of things we're fighting about. Pan-Africanism is not anti-European. Rather, it is against African oppression no matter where it exists. Pan-Africanism is about the Africans' ability to determine their own destiny. And now, our only choice is to look toward Africa's future. Africa is the 21st century's youngest continent. The UN predicts that by 2100, one third of the world's population will live in Africa. And with growing economies thanks to increased opportunities for women, increased tourism from Africans who don't live on the continent, and a growing tech sector, Africa has as bright a future as any of the Earth's continents. In fact, CNBC reports that six of the 15 fastest growing economies in the world are in Africa. Where we have to be careful, though, is we have to ensure that Africa's future remains in the possession of Africans, just as Europe belongs to Europeans and Asia belongs to Asians. Marcus Garvey used to say, Africa for the Africans at home and abroad, which means that wherever we are on this earth as African people, we must know that our North Star is Africa. Africa is not what your history teacher or your news channel tells you it is. Africa is the most beautiful and resource-rich continent on the planet, 
I encourage you all to take as many trips as you can to Africa and learn all about our history. Embrace African art and music and support African business whenever you can. Now actually would be a good time to shout out Snow Beats, the producer of this podcast the past two seasons, who lives in Nigeria. The work of a producer could be done remote, so I felt why not take the chance to work with an African brother on the continent. This show, and especially this episode, is a show of African solidarity. Our ancestors worked far too hard for us to allow their memories to fade. Rather, we need to keep the struggle alive for a liberated and unified Africa for the liberation and self-determination of all of her children. There will be those that live in the West that will say Pan-Africanism is unrealistic and will remain more proud of their colonial flag than they are of their African ancestry. I didn't spend much time addressing their sentiment in this episode, but to them I say, bleaching your African soul will not save you from anti-Black or anti-African sentiment. It would only shift the battle from outside of yourself to within. My name is Baudelaire, and thank you for listening to this season of The Soapbox. Garvey used to say Africa for the Africans. Is that how you feel? Yeah, Africa for Africans, a woman abroad, you know. Sure. <laughs> go back to this value and I think we we I don't think we've gone over it too well um, we need to look at what kind of societies did black people come out of what happened before this interference now we came out of basic pluralistic societies but we came out of sharing societies where nobody was very rich and nobody at all was poor now, an African in this society would no more kill a deer and say, this is mine, than he would fly. Because he didn't think that way. He thought of all property as belonging to the total community. Now, we were brought into a society as slaves just at the time the concept of private property and capitalism was getting well underway with the backing of the church. Now, there is a clash between the values of, the, the best values of the society we came out of and the society that enslaved us. And too many of us are tied up with these values, the sacredness of private property. What is so sacred about private property? What is so sacred about one man taking upon himself more than he could use in a lifetime while people walking by this mountain of wealth starving? Nothing particularly sacred about this. And these things did not exist in these old societies until these old societies began to have internal differences and the European came in and the African naively permitted him to arbitrate an African family dispute until we understand that up on site, the African invited the European for dinner. That's the first thing he did. The Indian invited the European for dinner. The Polynesians invited the European for dinner. Now, if you invite people for dinner, you first place, you've got plenty of dinner, and you have a society that is traditionally hospitable to strangers.